welcome to episode 237 of the Waters Wave Land podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and as usual, and as always, I've got my co-host with me here today. Hey, Tony, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great couple weeks, and and I feel good. That's great. Well, yeah. good news. We actually have a guest for you listeners That's today. also why I feel great, is because we have a guest <laughs> today, so... I don't have to give my opinion, so I feel very great about that. But go tell us, <laughs> who do we have as a guest today? <laughs> so joining me this week is Shamit Kundu. He is the former CDO at Stanchart and has recently joined a uh, startup called True Era, uh, which is dedicated to building trust in AI. So we talk a little bit about AI explainability, and then towards the end of it, uh, we uh, we talk about regulation and how that could Maybe or maybe not stifle innovation um, uh, in in AI at the at capital markets firms, uh, and it's also interesting to see you know how he's he spent quite a number of years at a large big bank to now moving to a uh, you know a smaller a, a smaller unit, um, which I mean we've seen happen over the couple of years, yeah. right? So that's quite interesting um, to get his insight from like how how things have changed for him, yeah. No, and you know, if I if I can say, I, I think it it ties into something that I would like to say because I know that most of our readers or most of our listeners uh, on the podcast are not subscribers. Um, you know, the the vast majority of our listeners uh, just are people that care about technology and want to hear about technology things, but our subscription rate is very high. But the cool thing about this conversation is it's and to go from a big organization is. It's such an important topic about explainability as machine learning becomes so much more uh, important. We, we published a story uh, earlier, uh, actually it was this week, yeah, um, about uh, banks fear Fed crackdown on AI models. You know, mm. it, it's so it, it's going to tie nicely into that article. It's a very, very big yeah. subject. And if people will allow me just very quickly, if ever you wanted to know what waterstechnology.com is all about, and you, so you're not if you just listen to the podcast, but you're not a subscriber, take out a trial this month, this week. OK, because we have a ton of great stories and I'm not I think that you all know me that I would be honest. We have some down weeks. We have some bad times, but we have some really great stories. Um, right now we have stuff about uh, this, this very huge, this, this huge um, uh, collaboration effort with JP Morgan, Deutsche Bank, CME, the big tech providers around digital language for our, uh, market data policy expressions. Outstanding. We have a story about uh, meme stocks and how data mm -hmm. providers are trying to figure out their offering around that. Uh, we have a, a, um, this a great story by Shen and uh, and Joe Wright about uh, exchanges and exchange fee structures and how they're trying to kind of cut out vendors. Uh, Max Bowie has a 4,000 word story about M&A, uh, ESG M&A consolidation. I've written about how big tech providers are going to be potentially the ones that are going to be leading the wave of market data consolidation going forward and ESG's going growing influence on market data consolidation. It's all to say we have a lot of really good stories and you know I, I would i swear to god i wouldn't be saying it if i really didn't believe it but i really think that right now we are basically the taylor swift i will say of <laughs> market data and and trading technology uh media in that you know last during the during a pandemic she came out with not one but two <laughs> insanely good albums and she was re-digitizing her other old albums so 
while most of our audience might not be into Taylor Swift, I don't know. <laughs> That's how I view us. This this month we've been the Taylor Swift of market data and trading technology coverage. <laughs> That's straight from a true Swifty. Yes. <laughs> also, by the time this podcast actually gets published, um, you know, once I'm done doing all the edits and yes. thanks Tony for not swearing. But okay. um You'll have another story that comes out, you know, on, and on Broadway. Broadway technology. Yes, Broadway technology. They got spun out of Ion. So we look at what basically Broadway technology 2.0 looks like for the fixed income. Sign up. You know, this is the time. And while you're <laughs> reading us, listen to folklore. Banger. <laughs> totally. Okay. Well, we'll get straight to it. So till next week, take care. Catch you later. Okay, joining me on the podcast this week is Shamit Kundu, former Chief Data Officer at Senate Chartered and now Head of Financial Services and Chief Strategy Officer at True Era, a startup dedicated to building trust in AI. Welcome, Shamit. How are you today? Very well. Thank you so much. And thank you for inviting me um, uh, to your podcast. That's great to have you. Um, well, I. I don't know if, if if our listeners know this, but you know you've been at Senate Chartered for about eleven to- eleven years in total. That's right. And you've held the role of a group CDO for about seven years, and uh, now you've recently moved to the startup space, you know, uh, and working at a, a a firm called True Era. So, if you if we may start, like, um, how has the move been from you know? Uh, working at a large bank to now a small startup firm, you know, what has been the major change for you? Um, so it's been exciting. Uh, it's been a little bit crazy. Um, uh, I guess what's been the, the major change? Um, the, the biggest two changes are, 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 are speed and focus. Uh, speed in terms of how much time it takes to make up a de- uh, to 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 make a decision and to act upon it so for example last week i started talking about we should have a strategy for uh, approaching the fintech market uh, and then in one more day we had okay here's the companies we'll go after and uh, we split up who's going after what what our messages is uh, doing something equivalent in a larger company would have taken much longer uh, the other though is focus uh, it is helpful after being in charge of a broad range of things as chief data officer and also as cio for functions and stand chart it's helpful to be able to focus on more or less one thing which is this area of how to make ai trustworthy and then focus all your energies on different aspects of that i think that focus also is quite uh, quite an interesting shift after being in a more in a broader role in a large organization. That's interesting. I mean, could you give me an example of how you dealt with that? I mean, being in a broader role at Stanchart and having, I guess, in your broader role, you had multiple roles to play as well. So uh, just to, to give our listeners an idea. Uh, so at Stanchart, I had, um, before I left, I had 2,500 people um, in my team. Uh, it was uh, primarily because of our of my CIO enterprise functions role, um, and, and so the, the only way to uh, to answer your question, the only way to get any kind of focus on anything in that world is is is, is two things. One, get yourself a fantastic team, which is easier said than done. But I was very very fortunate to have several great, uh, very talented people, some of whom have have succeeded me in one of my two roles and and, and have done very well and inside and outside. Uh, so that helps you kind of focus more on how to support that individual um, rather than on the content. And then 
I always had my guilty secret piece. Out of 2,500, there were 50 people who would work on my floor around me, and they were all focused on data and AI. And that was my area where I could say, okay, my my time, my brain power would be spent on that. Um, and most of my uh, engagement was on that. So that's how roughly I used to do it, which is have a really good team managing the broader piece um, and then pick your pieces. One could be this. There was some some more work in reg tech, compliance related technology. That was a focus area. And by by choosing which are those few areas where you'll go deeper, whereas where the other areas where you'll uh, focus on enabling your strong team. I think that that worked quite well for me. Okay, okay. So today I actually want to talk to you about uh, AI explainability and you know how to build uh, well trustworthy AI. So uh, it, it was only a few years ago that you know banks and asset managers were well a little bit hesitant to use AI. And for the purpose of this conversation, obviously uh, that includes machine learning and deep learning as well, since they sit under the uh, entire AI umbrella. So it was the idea that, you know, using it in any part of the business, you know, was a black box and firms were afraid that they couldn't tell, you know, why they got X or Y as an output instead of Z, right? Uh, clearly now that has changed. Uh, there are now models that have uh, explainability in built into them and um, be, uh, uh, developers can definitely put that into the models. Uh, so Shamik, as you see it, what do you think are the major issues that capital market firms now deal with when it comes to AI since they have moved past that initial uh, hesitation? Yeah, so I guess that's the first part, right? So I mean, while you ask about the challenges, but I mean, the, the reality is capital market firms have adopted uh, AI in a broad set of areas. Maybe the depth of that adoption, you know, how far they're going with it is 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 not as much as uh, as many would like. But certainly the in terms of breadth, everything from, you know, the KYC process to trade and communication surveillance, uh, security related aspects, um, auto reconciliations and matching, uh, getting information out of contracts, processing quotes from clients using NLP, natural language processing, uh, in the actual trading, you know, the execution, venue, timing, order size, optimization, identifying sales opportunities, asset selection, all of these asset monitoring, portfolio rebalancing, all of these areas do have use cases. So I guess the starting point is there are a large number of use cases. Uh, but of course, you're absolutely right in saying that while there is broad adoption and multiple surveys have identified this and people say anywhere between half to two thirds of all uh, capital markets firms are certainly using um, AI in some form, but the number that are using it in a form that is significant to their bottom line is, is relatively low. So in other words, it's used quite a bit, but it's not necessarily that critical for most of these firms. Now, why is that? Um, I think there's a few reasons, and of course I work on one part of the problem, but I'll probably um, share with you my thoughts on all. The first reason is sometimes just because AI is not yet good enough in a particular area, right? And then I think it takes it takes a while for people to get around to that view. But the reality is the question cannot always be why not use AI? The question could also be why do I use AI? If I have a reasonably good alternative to, to something, uh, you know, just using a machine learning model um, is, is not necessarily necessary. I'll give you a simple non-capital markets example of that. You know, one use of AI in many places is during the onboarding process for customers, use it for facial recognition, comparing it to your documents, et cetera. But if you're in Singapore or India and have 
uh, and many other countries. And you have a reliable national ID scheme where you can port all the information from that. This is entirely unnecessary. You can prove yourself much more easily by authenticating yourself to the national ID scheme, import, approving the use of the data. And it's mm -hmm. much faster with zero uh, probability of any errors because you've kind of directly accessed the national ID scheme. So just as one example, there are instances where AI is good and there are instances where there are other alternatives available. And particularly in the capital markets context, which happens to be more advanced in the adoption of technology, including analytics and data in the past, the reality is in several use cases, it is not yet proven that the machine learning or deep learning based solutions are necessarily better mm. than alternatives. So that is one reason. I mean, whether you call it a challenge or not, but it's a reason, right? And you know, getting around it basically is, you know, as long as people can prove that they can do better than the alternatives, you might get get acceptance. So that's one block of reasons. I think the second, which is slowly getting addressed, is not having enough data or at least not of the right quality. This has always been a problem, but as you are well aware, machine learning models, most of them uh, do depend a lot on having large volumes of data uh, to train them, although there's a small subcategory of models that, that, that don't, but most of them do. Uh, and of course, when you have large volumes, then the question of the quality of that data, particularly if it's third-party source data, uh, becomes, uh, becomes significant. Um, there are constraints around talent. Um, I think every single... Uh, geography um, with with kind of substantial financial services um, workforces are, is is struggling with the number of open positions, both in core machine learning, but also in a bunch of roles that support um, uh, those folks, and particularly around the technology stack, uh, but also increasingly in risk management. Right, you know, finding good model risk management people who have exposure to machine learning is extremely tough. Finding auditors who can audit machine learning models, extremely tough, right? Um, so, so the, the you know, the, that point or, or even, uh, you know, and of course the core data scientists themselves are certainly a, a hot, hot job out there right now. So that does hurt, um, maybe not the biggest firms, but certainly some of the smaller firms find it difficult to access the talent. Uh, there's also a question of the infrastructure for building and deploying machine learning models. You know, it's still largely art rather than science. A small number of banks um, and asset, more banks than asset managers, I would suspect, but maybe some of the asset managers as well, have invested in scalable technology for their data scientists to build and test and deploy their models. But a lot of them still don't have this end-to-end -end data science workbench um, of, of different components that, that they need. So all of these reasons um, are important. Personally, and the reason I made this shift I personally believe the one barrier that kind of stands above all of them is the lack of trustworthiness. And it's both a, a function of all these others, but it's also uh, in its own right. And that's the point about, you know, you call it black box, you call it, we don't understand what's going on, we can't be relied upon. So so primarily there's a few things. There is a the whole question of, do we understand all the machine learning models? And yeah, um, that, that becomes a concern. Uh, it's particularly a concern when, individual customers are involved because uh, then there are you know uh, um, good good treatment of customers considerations also comes in but even with cap, uh, you know even in with corporate clients or institutional clients uh, that can be an issue internally within the organization uh, people might not be willing to shift to a new investment allocation model if you don't understand how it works so that's one block uh, there is questions about the reliability of such models over time particularly when 
there are major shifts in data and and mm -hmm. certainly in the outside capital markets in the credit space there was some evidence of that during covid-19 where some of the ml models did not necessarily age well uh, when the data shifted so dramatically uh, there are concerns again when it comes to uh, models impacting individual customers about unfair bias and whether uh, and then even if you don't think about the unfair part when the data itself is skewed in a particular direction. It doesn't have to be unfair to an individual. It can still be wrong just because, oh, you've got data which is skewed towards uh, a particular part of the uh, population or a particular part of the uh, of the universe that you're trying to model, and you use that to train a model, and therefore the model gave a certain kind of results. Uh, so if I take an example close to you know our home if 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 you if you build a model for southeast asia literally and say well actually i've taken malaysia and singapore and i'm i'm going to assume that it's it's going to be representative of the region as a whole i mean nobody does that but but let's say if you take that i mean that training of the model using a certain kinds of data and then trying to extend that more broadly doesn't work uh, similarly you could say well this is a model that is primarily focused on old economy kind of companies and actually does not represent the newer kinds of companies that well. So, so the bias in the data that is used to train the model can have implications for its predictive accuracy and indeed for its fairness also. Um, when in, in, in So all of these factors are important, but personally the factor that I feel is most important and the one I have chosen to, uh, to focus on is that last one, which is how do we improve the trustworthiness uh, of 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 machine learning models, um, irrespective of who builds them, that's that's what our company does. It provides software that analyzes and monitors any kind of machine learning model, irrespective of who built it uh, and whether you bought it or you built it yourself. Hmm, okay, and definitely all those factors are pertinent to uh, well. AI working well, right? But uh, I, I'd like to bring up these two, the two biggest points that uh, a lot of our readers are also, you know, have been thinking about, which is obviously data and infrastructure. And you mentioned earlier that some, that uh, you mentioned an interesting point that infrastructure at this moment is more art, is more art than science, right? And not many firms have that end-to-end -end data science workbench. I mean, uh, you know, coming from that side of the the industry, how would you how would you say what what is this the state of where uh, the big banks and asset managers are? are? Are they already there? And it's more the so, sort of the mid and small size uh, banks and asset managers that have to think about this, or you know, uh, you know, what is the the lay of the land basically? No, I think I mean obviously the the bigger banks have have in many cases have had an earlier start. Um, uh, not necessarily just the biggest ones by size, but also the ones that have uh, the the longest heritage of of using data and analytics. Right, those those have had a start. But it would be very difficult for anyone to claim that they have a fully um, stacked up you know infrastructure. And partly it's because it's a very very rapidly evolving space. If you try and look at Gartner reports for this space, for example, you'll be astounded by the number of vendors and, and, and not just, it's not just the number of vendors, but at each stage of the machine le learning life cycle, there are, there are different tools dedicated to that. So there's a bunch of tools dedicated to data preparation and labeling. There's a bunch of tools dedicated to training of models. There's a bunch of tools dedicated, actually even on the data side, there's a bunch of tools, that, uh, companies that are dedicated to generating synthetic data, which is like a mm. sub 
piece within that, right? Then the training of the data, then testing, uh, sorry, training of the models, then the testing of the models, different from putting models into pr production and deployment. Then there's the monitoring. Then there's what we do, which sometimes spans multiple of these phases, which is diagnostic, monitoring, testing, all of these together. So at the moment, it is a relatively immature space. Um, without naming any companies, there are certainly some big cloud providers as well as non-cloud providers who, who are trying to build a presence uh, across the board. But the reality is none of them are mature enough um, in across the board. And so it is going to be a bit unstable for a while. So that's the supply side. But now if you look at the demand side, which is inside the banks and the asset managers, it's been something that has indeed been an art on the side, you know, for most, not for all, but for most it's been, oh, we've hired some data scientist. He's in his own room or she's in her own room in Cream <laughs> and, and she's got a bunch of like-minded people, but we don't understand what she does and we give her full freedom to use um, you know, whatever you know, notebook-based solution she wants to use, right? From that to moving it to, well, sorry folks, we now have to do a bit of standardization. Everybody must use a certain set of tools is an important next step. It's not that there's a lot of resistance to it, but that step is only being taken now. Uh, it's not been, um, it's, not, it's not that it's already happened. I mean, I would say of the 30, 40 financial institutions that I have engaged extensively in the last six months as either clients or prospects, um, I would say no more than 10 to 20% have a mature foot, uh, sorry, mature blueprint even, forget having the actual technology. Even having a mature blueprint is probably at the top 10 to 20%. The vast majority are in the process of uh, building that blueprint and, 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 and you know, um, filling it out. That's, that's mm. where the vast majority are. Mm, interesting point there. I mean, as you mentioned, like in in the past few years, a lot of uh, firms have you know hired the you know these glorified glorified uh, data scientists, right? Maybe they put them in their own room and leave them alone doing God knows what. But that has also been the the uh, I I guess the the start or the yeah the start of the data translator role, right? And how that uh, this role has meant to you know talk to both the data scientists and the business and try to work out like how they can actually work together, uh, perhaps as seamlessly and painlessly as, as possible. Um, yeah, so it's, it's it's been interesting to see how some uh, firms have actually created these roles as well and what that has uh, resulted in basically. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. But, but but one, one, one um, thought from my side at least is that in some ways, that was a stopgap measure. And in, in many ways, we need to increase the overall data analytics AI quotient of the entire population um, in the, inside a financial institution. Not because everybody has to become a data scientist, but actually that data translator role. You know, do, do we have an IT translator today? We don't. We have IT people who provide us technology um, support, uh, but we don't need a translator to tell us, oh, this is how Zoom works, etc. We work it out ourselves. So I do think generally all of us have to get a bit more aware of, you know, uh, what what you are, what one is talking about when it comes to, okay, what is data, what is analytics, what is descriptive analytics versus predictive or prescriptive analytics, when is something machine learning versus when is it a traditional statistical model, you know, just because the model says so, how do I, how do I ask intelligent, I always say, you don't have to know enough to become a data scientist, uh, but particularly if you are accountable as a business person who's got to use the outcome of that, 
you should know enough to ask the difficult questions mm. um, and, and to, 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 to know whether you can trust uh, what's being put in front of you. Uh, and I think in some ways, if we do that well, you want, one doesn't need a data translator because everybody, uh, at least everybody in the business who has to use the data becomes a data translator in their own right. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. I, I know there are some banks, I think there's a Singaporean bank actually that is trying to, uh, I, I guess, make, no, not make, but um, maybe upskill, reskill yeah. uh, a lot of their employees. Yeah, ten, tens of thousands of employees. I, actually, I, I, I'm, I'm even on the, on the course, it's, it's a course by CFT where I'm one of the uh, faculties in one of the, one of the small pieces. So yeah, there were 10,000 plus uh, uh, people from that particular uh, bank that have done, but it's they're not alone. There, there's at least two Singaporean banks. There's there's multiple banks elsewhere in the world that are in, embarking on that. So I think it's it's really important that we there's a general upskilling, but then there also there is a specific upskilling on AI for your job. So for example, even if you are a you know uh, a, a reasonably specialized person in let's say I'm I'm making this up, but let's say market surveillance. You know, mm-hmm. if you are if you have market surveillance in your role, you do need to understand how the algorithms, whether AI or traditional, that are providing the market surveillance alerts to you, how do they work? You need to know enough to ask the right questions so that you know how much you can trust them or not. So I think there's both general upskilling, but also role-based training of how data analytics AI impacts your particular role. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. So, um, and I want to get to a, a topic that is, I guess, very close to a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, capital markets firms' hearts. You know, as they use more and more AI in various parts of the business, whether you know it's in building thematic funds or making predictions in the post-trade value chain, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, they still need to deal with the regulators, right? Uh, and of course, uh, regulators around the world uh, have been quite varied in their approach. Obviously, Hong Kong and Singapore have their own little fight <laughs> against who is who's better and who is uh, more ahead of each other. Um, and you know, recently, uh, the U.S. regulators, basically um, led by the Fed, you know, the U.S. prudential regulators actually issued a request for information uh, on the uses of AI and ML, uh, and perhaps signaling that some of the banks are uh, maybe maybe they seem a little bit uh, afraid that they need to, you know. Uh, basically disclose more information about how they are using ML uh, and that could possibly lead to them stifling innovation a little bit, perhaps. So what is your view and what is your take on how regulations, uh, how regulators, sorry, are looking to looking at the use of AI within this, um, these firms? So I'll answer your second question first and then come to my view on the re- on the specific uh, Fed piece, which I think is due uh, on, on the 1st of July. Mm. Um, I, I guess one thing I will caveat is I'm speaking on my behalf, not on behalf of uh, the banks in the U.S. or or elsewhere in the world who are thinking about it. But uh, on, I think in terms of how the regulators have approached it, I mean, first of all, a little bit of a caveat. I, I have, of course, been involved in the regulatory initiatives in Singapore and am right. part of a public-private consultation group with uh, in the U.K. as well. Uh, but I'm not saying because of that. I generally think every regulator that I've spoken to, um, and it's probably across the world, there's at least um, eight or nine major jurisdictions that I've spoken to on this topic, is approaching this in an extremely thoughtful and nuanced manner. There has been a huge amount of openness to say, 
this is an important area. We don't want to stifle innovation too quickly, uh, or indeed we don't want to stifle innovation at all, uh, and, and we don't want to put in strict prescriptive rules too quickly, which is why it is now three years since uh, MAS first talked about the, the fairness, ethics, accountability, and transparency principles. And to my knowledge, there isn't a single prescriptive rule different from um, uh, regulatory guidance. Uh, guidance is there, but prescriptive rules dedicated to AI or machine learning, uh, they're not there yet. Now, we're reaching a stage where maybe some, some jurisdictions will come up with those, but my firm belief on the approach so far is it's been characterized by realism, which is this is an area that nobody has really grasped fully uh, and it's rapidly evolving. It's grasped by uh, it's characterized by materiality. So they're not saying every single use of ML must be treated equally. They're talking, encouraging banks to think about the materiality and 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 what it, it's characterized characterized by balance. So for example, one major regulator has already I mean, I can mention this. Hong Kong has already explicitly mentioned in its transparency requirements that, hey, by the way, while you have to be transparent with customers, there will be valid reasons like fraud and, and AML where you don't want to do that. So I think there's a lot of balance between the interests of the organization and the interests of the customers. Um, and, and most importantly, a willingness to listen. The number of regulators that have formed consultative bodies, including the ones I'm part of, but also many others, and even the U.S. you know the federal Fed-led consultation. It's a massive consultation which they extended for a month, precisely because they want to engage the industry in this. So I actually think it's been a really good response so far. We'll see how it evolves. I do think after two, three years of thinking about it, perhaps some of them will perhaps become more more prescriptive um, in, in, the, in their guidance. But from every account I've had so far, it should not be uh, it should not be something that stifles innovation too much. Of course, it will increase a level of governance and discipline as, as time goes by, but that's that's to be desired. In fact, I would say that will help in the adoption because sometimes good regulation, um, like the EU AI draft law, um, they explicitly say, hey, we are setting these rules, not because we don't want you to use AI in these high-risk areas, but precisely because we want you to use it. And we are mm -hmm. giving you that regulatory certainty, saying if you do these things, it will be good. And this is this is not financial services specific. This is broader. So now to your question on the on the U.S. piece itself. Look, I've only read it as a as a request for information. Um, there is nothing there that suggests uh, they're, they're asking good questions about uh, about explainability, about fairness, um, about other issues that normally exist with machine learning models. At this stage, I personally haven't seen anything which suggests they're out to stifle innovation, but we'll see. I mean, it's it's a long consultation exercise. I, I guess one debate in the US, which is also referred to in these questions, is whether there is a place for uh, only models that are inherently explainable, such as um, uh, generalized um, um, models, uh, GAMs and GLMs, which are kind of by, day, by definition from day one, they're meant to be inherently interpretable, versus those that are not, but can be made um, interpretable post facto using other technologies. That debate is certainly out there. Um, uh, my personal view on that would be there's a place for both kinds of models. Uh, if you just limit it to the former, we will potentially uh, inhibit innovation. Uh, but, 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 but we'll see how, how the position evolves on that.
OK, so just to if you could give an example of, you know, where some of these post hoc models have are, are being used now and if regulators do decide to clamp down on the use of these models and kind of, you know, in, in some ways prefer for firms to use inherently explainable models, what would it mean for the use where they're being used at the moment? Yeah, well, first of all, I think you, you touch upon an area which people far more knowledgeable than me are debating. There is a raging debate in the machine learning community about uh, about whether inherently explainable models are good enough um, as compared to the other ones. Uh, it, it is foolhardy of me to try and opine on that. My, so I won't opine on whether the two are good enough. But what I would say is to your question, where are um, you know non-inherently explainable models used? I mean, a lot of image text, um, voice related models are certainly in that category. Um, even even normal time series and and um, and um, and uh, and just kind of normal structured data models, uh, including gradient boosted models, several types of neural networks, they all don't fall in the category of inherently explainable models. Um, so and, and what what that would mean to your question is there will be probably some categories where um, where there aren't an there isn't an equivalent inherently explainable model that is anywhere close to the same level of performance today. That doesn't mean it can't change over time, but right now it isn't. And certainly most kinds of image, voice, text processing models certainly will fall in that category. But even in, in as I mentioned, even in the normal categories, uh, gradient boosted models do provide in many cases um, better predictive accuracy than than the uh, inherently explainable ones. Now, one solution we've seen some of the banks and, and asset managers use is to use the, the, the more advanced modeling techniques to try and extract features, which they then incorporate into the more inherently explainable models, which might be an interesting way of approaching it, where you still use the the, the so-called black box models, but only as a almost like a pre-processing step and once you are convinced uh, about the features that it suggests, then you still use it properly in a more inherently explainable way. So that is certainly one approach I've I've heard a few companies talk about. Well, what are some examples of that? I mean, how do you extract a feature from a, a non-inherently explainable model and then later on put it into an inherently explainable model? Yeah, I mean, in effect, you know, in an inherently explainable model, you you will not be allowed to kind of say, I don't understand what happened in there, right? Which means you need to know what, very simplistically, what went into the funnel. And what you're doing in this case is you are deciding what to put into the funnel um, based on the output from uh, a GBM, let's say, right? And, and so you 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 let the gradient boosted model run. You look at um, you do the post hoc explanation of that, and you say, I mean, if I take a very simple example, say actually it looks like interestingly the length of service of uh, length of employment of this customer has an important uh, implication on their creditworthiness. Uh, first, let's try and justify. Yes, the machine said this. The 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 GBM model said this. First, let's try and justify that internally. Once we are convinced, now we can put it into our in inherently explainable model as one of the factors for the decision making. Uh, so it, it takes away that regulatory or compliance risk because you're not actually, while a machine might have told you this might be a good feature, you're actually assessing that yourself before you put it into the funnel. That makes it um, you know, easier to, I mean, this is a very, very simplified explanation. There are people much, <laughs> much more qualified than me on this, but th that is a, a crude way of kind of laying that particular point out. That is a very helpful explanation, actually, and it makes it helps me understand better how well 
how firms could, you know, look to do this. So perhaps there's a last question. I mean, uh, obviously, True Era uh, not only deals with uh, the financial space. You have clients all over, uh, you know, um, uh, across industries. Where would you say uh, to you is the most interesting use of AI that you see right now? Yeah, I, you know, the, 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 the 20 years of industry uh, loyalty says one thing and uh, <laughs> the, 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 the mind says something else. So, look, first of all, in terms of where the opportunity is for any company that is in the broad space of uh, artificial intelligence, I still think financial services has to be a very significant, um, mostly number one, particularly if you include across insurance banking and asset management, it will be number one uh, almost always, right? Um, but that's an opportunity point. Um, in terms of the impact it can have on, AI can have on, on society, on, on, you know, on, on humanity overall, it would be vain of us to say we are the most important. I think there are many other areas, as all of us know, uh, including you know, drug discovery, healthcare, public service provision. Um, so all of these have bigger potential. Uh, if you ask me what excites me uh, is is probably the use of, I don't know if it's only AI, but the use of data uh, in addressing the most intractable problems of our generation or of the next generation, which is around climate change and more broadly around environment. Uh, and you, you would have seen some of this in the capital markets industry in terms of how to use, how to get reliable data on whether an ESG fund is really an ESG fund. That's the financial angle of it. But there's the actual, you know, how do I know whether the things I'm doing is genuinely improving, um, you know, the, the the situation with the with the environment. I've had people who use data uh, to to understand, you know, the, the the improvement in in pollution in the seas or the, you know, the the, the deterioration for that matter. Um, there's 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 questions about, you know, how energy efficient are. Uh, in different structures, so so there's that. I think if you ask me what excites me most, or as a as a potential for the future, I would say anything that we as data professionals can do to help us address the biggest challenge of our time would be super exciting. A close second would be, I mean, it looks like we are here to live in the age of pandemics. This is just the start in many ways. Uh, I think being able to uh, to manage uh, better, both in terms of drug discovery, um, you know. Manage our in, in the way in which we do lockdowns or otherwise better using data in a safe way. I think that would also be quite important. So responses to to pandemics would probably be a second big one. So as I said, uh, the loyalty of the industry will say, yeah, yeah, of course, financial services is most important. <laughs> but in terms of you know exciting opportunities, that those are the ones that would probably excite me more. Okay, okay. Well, this has been a very interesting chat. Thank you very much, Amit, for joining me today. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity.